We'll use the force. That's not how the force works. I have a bad feeling about this. This is the 11 Days of Star Wars. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by spending two weeks at Christmas lovingly analyzing all the highs and lows of our favorite franchises. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa. Now, what you're thinking, Lazi's here with us, so I'm going to introduce him with a long string of names. But Lazi is a nobody. He has no last name. It's either that or your middle name's Sheev and your last name's Palpatine. Hey, Lazi. Hi, Sam and I'm a Ding Dong. How are you? <laughs> I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm here. Did you put the bop in the bop sha bop sha bop? Lazi, have you been doing anything holiday for the holidays with your children? I took my kids to the shopping center today and it was really tedious. So, ah, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The childhood shopping center trip. I've sent my uh, Maroxing Day order to my father to pick up, so he's going to find a leg of lamb at Costco. You can really tell that we are very, very close to Christmas. Things have gotten real. Things have gotten it real. Is, it is no longer discussion of traditions and music and movies and fa la 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 It's about shopping. Shopping for presents. You may have missed this in today's random Twitter meltdown, Sam, but I <laughs> did so find many. something for you. I did find something for you on a question that you brought up last time, which was, are there any UK Christmas songs this year? I saw that. I like that the Christmas single or the Christmas number one is being used for political protest. Yes. And that sounds yes. fine. I mean, it's it's a subtle message. It's, uh, the song is called <laughs> Fuck the Tories. Ah, but, uh, yeah. The true meaning of Christmas. Absolutely. <laughs> Fortunately, they're quite. They're they 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 spent a good year fucking themselves alongside the country. So. You know, we haven't talked about this particular program, so I have no idea if I'm going to make a huge mistake by saying this. But it's interesting hearing that because I just I last week finished the latest season of The Crown, which ends with you know Tony Blair and his party's decisive victory. And boy, have things changed. Yep. 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 Flossie's <laughs> <laughs> just... like, I would rather talk about Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, I've had 12 years of Tory government. I'm not. And and six years of fucking Brexit. So I'm <laughs> just tired. It's been six years, really? Yeah, it was six, 2016 was the vote. Wow. Well, we've also been watching, uh, also on Netflix, the uh, the new uh, Harry and Meghan documentary, and uh, yes. I mean, you at, at seeing the dates referred to on there, I'm like, God, this has really been going on that long. And you know what? The second thing I thought was, Suits has been off the air almost long enough for it to come back on. <laughs> and you just really, Harry, you really want her to come back to Suits? What I want, don't you? what I want is. The suits Northwest. At the end of the show, Mike and Ra- well, not at not at the end of the show because they leave at their before end of the, the final show. season, yeah. right? Their final season. Thank you. Uh, they move to the Pacific Northwest, which I remember at the time being like, "Oh, it's like Doug and Carol from ER," and they were going to do some sort of like 
pro bono legal aid situation. And so it would be really cool to see a revival series where it's turned, you know, because it's successful, it's grown. So it's a workplace dramedy with Rachel and Mike and the the new lawyer played by Harry. <laughs> Can he act? Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like he was a royal, so he had to for most of his life. <laughs> well, there's that. Put him yeah. in a, put, just put him in a random stormtrooper outfit. And yeah, I bet work. he could do it. Yeah. I bet he could. <laughs> Why is there a stormtrooper at this law firm? Well, you just you just don't don't no. ask these questions. No, you don't, don't need to know. Don't need to know. Don't need to know. Yeah, I saw that. Like, what's his name from? Oh, we are so starting this, oh, this on Star Wars topic. But like, I saw that the guy from the o- Ryan from the OC is now like an anti-crypto um, advocate um, talking to Congress or something about it today, and that he's married to Marina Baccarin, which was also something I didn't know. All of those things are not things, things. that I knew before this conversation. <laughs> the world is a very strange place. It's true, and it gets stranger every day. Yeah. Well, I think maybe this is the way to steer it back into Star Wars. Tessa and I have probably talked about this movie more today than we've talked about any other the other movies so far on the day that we've watched them. And one of the things that I said after we finished the documentary, because there's a bit on honoring Harrison Ford and his character. And uh, this was something brought up a couple of days ago that a a generation of, of people that Laza, you and I have grown up with. I mean, of course, Tessa, you've grown up with them, but they've been around for like our entire lives are going to be gone. Not tomorrow, not the day after that, but relatively speaking soon. And it's going to become, for me, I just think about how it becomes a world that's more and more unrecognizable because many of the the touchstones that you had growing up aren't around anymore. And for better or for worse, celebrities are a big part of that. I mean, I think actually who sparked this conversation was seeing John Williams in that documentary uh, because he's obviously very old at this point, although it's kind of interesting to see that he's still game to, you know, write this music and engage with the series in that way. But it is really sad to think about all these people who have been so instrumental in what cinema even is over the last like three decades, really, how they're getting older, right? And they're they're no longer they they no longer have the role I think that they used to. It is sad. It is. We lost George Michael on Christmas and Carrie Fisher almost on Christmas. It's it's kind of a bummer, man. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's stop being a bummer and talk about The Force Awakens. We've done politics and death, so it must be time for Star Wars. It's it's clearly (laughs) Christmas. All right. Uh, Now that we're all psyched and stoked and whatnot, (laughs) I have real feelings about this movie, but since I'm hosting, I get to talk last. Lazi, what are your initial impressions of the force awakens is it good no it's great oh so it's not good it's great it's great i truly love this film like i get giddy i got giddy watching it in the cinema and i still get giddy watching parts of it uh now i think it is funny 
by like a country mile i think it's the funniest and sharpest script of anything in star wars i think the performances are great i think we get introduced to four new fantastic characters that really hold the screen with performances that allow them to do that as well i absolutely recognize the nostalgia and the the echoes that it plays off of from um from particularly from star wars but for me it just hits every button every note perfectly i really like this film tessa is this movie great i wouldn't call it great I think it's good. I My feelings about this film are very complex, and I feel like I'm still sorting through them even after having seen this film several times. I do think it is a good film, and I do really enjoy it. But there are a lot of ways in which I think this could have been better contextualized, especially considering some of the conversations we've had previously about what should happen after this, like what should happen after the original trilogy. However, I agree with you, Lazi. The new characters are really great. I think a lot of this film would have worked even in the ways that I wish it was changed a little bit. I think there that large elements of this film work very well. It is a return to that original trilogy style storytelling, especially uh, visually. This film is very beautiful in a lot of ways, and I definitely want to talk about that as well. I think my biggest problem is the rehashing of the Death Star plot, to be completely honest with you. And I think it's not necessarily... Because Lucas does this himself in the original trilogy, right? He has, you know, Star Wars, the Death Star, and then he has Return of the Jedi, which we talked about. I don't really like Return of the Jedi all that much. Um, I like parts of it more than I like the whole. And I even... By Return of the Jedi now, I'm kind of like, oh, this story again? Why can't we do something else? And so for a third time for it to happen, it's just not my favorite thing in the whole world. I think that they could have had some other threat to the galaxy that wasn't the Death Star. But that's, again, like that's maybe just me. I know some people have had issues with it as well, but other people love it. So it's more of a me thing than anything else. But I really wanted to also comment on the fact that I know both of you are very familiar with this feeling because of The Phantom Menace. This was the first Star Wars that I ever saw in the theater as an adult. And my feelings towards the prequels when I first saw them were very different than probably yours were because I was a child and I was not old enough to be nostalgic for anything yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas this was the first new Star Wars um, that I had seen since I was a child. Um, so I had all of those emotions attached to this film. Like I distinctly remember like starting to cry in the movie theater when the, you know, opening music, um, you know, came on and like, you know, it's so it is very hard, I think, to separate this film from nostalgia and from that feeling of being like, you know, new Star Wars in our lifetime, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, all of that kind of thing. But I think the more I watch it, the more critical I am of its flaws, but then the more that I I love the parts of it that I love. Mm. I think it's interesting about the Death Star, Star Killer or whatever it's called, base that you mentioned. Star Killer Base. It is Star Killer Base. Okay. So uh, I was thinking about this and I thought, why, why is the ultimate weapon for the Empire and then the First Order, the ability to blow up a planet or series of planets or system of planets. And trying to reverse engineer this logic in my head. And it occurs to me that Andor actually gives us the best answer. Is that when the Rebel Alliance or, you know, 
factions are doing guerrilla warfare and it becomes harder and harder to tamp down, if you could just destroy a whole planet, one, mm. you could, you know, if you get them while they're there, right, which is what they're trying to do in the first movie, there's no more rebellion. It's super easy. And if not, like you blow up Alderaan, maybe all the other systems are like, uh, we don't, we don't do rebels. We don't know. And it's just interesting to think if you think about it from that perspective, can you think of a more effective, I mean, it fails three times, but can you think of a more efficient and effective way to, to quash a rebellion? I mean, I think that's why we get that. I mean, again, like, it, it, I know it is a personal preference that they not repeat this plot point over and over again. And maybe if it hadn't been repeated in Return of the Jedi, I would feel a lot better about it in this film. It's just like after having just watched Return of the Jedi, I'm just like, this is why are we doing yeah. this again? Like, why are we doing this again? There are other ways that we could have done this. I think uh, I think you're both right. Um, I think particularly watching it straight after return of the jedi you're you're going like okay so we're now three death stars in four films like what's what's going on right and i think it's certainly something i was very critical of some of the legends books where they kept bringing back new new versions of the death star and it was extremely tedious but equally back to to sam's point which goes to tarkin's point uh, in a new hope which is fear will keep the the mm -hmm. the um systems in line which goes to cassian cassian's point to um uh, luthan in andor which is that they don't notice us they don't care about us and if they are suddenly do notice then they will just swat it like a fly and they don't they're not even considerate of the impact that, say, the destruction of a of a world would have on their resource, because they've got so much resources, they're so fat, which I think is uh, which is Cassian's language in in Andor, just in terms of their approach to things. So I think that's the sort of the internal film logic of why it keeps coming back again. But equally, I completely understand the point of guys. I've seen three death stars now and i'm bored of death stars and even this film is frankly bored that it's a death star they just hand wave it away and just like oh ha you know harrison ford's like oh yeah there's always a way to take these down like they just acknowledge that it's just a bigger death star and i kind of don't care about that it works for me it's like slightly lampshading it enough for me to to make it work yeah i mean it's not the worst that i've ever seen this particular thing used in a revival but I think the most interesting part of it is the fact that it consumes the energy of a star in order to do this. Like that star is gone. And I, I don't think Star Wars is ever going to do ecosystem stuff, but it would be very interesting to talk about like, what is, what is the effect of removing a star from this system? Like, you know, what is the, what, what happens when you run out, you know? And so that, that's the more interesting conversation, but this film can't have that conversation. It doesn't have the time to, it just wants another existential threat. This very easily could have just been a fleet of ships, star destroyers, and it would have worked just as well, to be honest with you. And that's, that's what it is in the rise of Skywalker, right? Two things, then followed by my initial answer. Okay. All right. So it's, it's two, <laughs> but then there's two inside. <laughs> we'll talk about legends a little bit uh, later in the retcon corner because that's where they go. But 
it's important to remember that the first Thrawn trilogy, where does Thrawn come from? Well, he's out there in deep space building a, you guessed it, other Death Star. Does that matter? Not really. And that's kind of, you know, how I took this, right? Does he build a Death Star, though? I, I miss, maybe I'm misremembering it. I don't remember there being a Death Star in that, that trilogy. Uh, maybe we're way we're way ahead of the game. Yes, I'll I'll admit defeat to that point in that segment. The other thing is too, <laughs> the Death Stars are fueled by Kyber crystals, and so it's interesting that the First Order would veer away from the Force. And I think this is a preface of things to come. I kind of have a theory, and this is my uh, my my. It's not hot at all. I guess it's a cold take. Well, okay, I'll just come back to that. But I have a thought on the lack of kyber crystal and using the star instead. So I, the way that I answer the question, is this movie good, is to say, yes, it is a new story. It looks cool. I love the characters, both old and new. The answer is also no, because I feel like they should recut The Last Jedi with the very first scene is from Nope where Daniel Kaluuya actually says the name of the movie. <laughs> it's instead of when 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 Luke goes to grab the lightsaber from Rey, it just cuts to Kaluuya saying nope. And that way you know everything else in the movie is going to be a nope. Basically, I I read it and it was really good the other day that The Rise of Skywalker is a well actually. And I think The Last Jedi is a nope. And so when you look back on the sequel trilogy as a trilogy, as well as how the sequel trilogy fits within the trilogy of trilogies, it's not a good movie because of its place in that overall narrative. And, you know, I've I've hinted at the fact that I don't really care for J.J. Abrams' involvement. And as I was listening back to some of the stuff that I've edited in this series, I know that doesn't sound... It doesn't come off very good. And... The whole thing about it is, is this movie is super good. And basically, I think the blame for everything falls on J.J. Abrams, but also also the adult in charge, Kathleen Kennedy, for not yeah, saying, no, you I should agree. actually write a trilogy. And and not just yeah, be like, the- everybody can do what they want. And And I'll go even further and say, and we'll talk about this in a couple of days, the original script for Rise of Skywalker might have worked out okay. Yeah. You know, and so it's it's Abrams and Kennedy that keep changing it. And what that does that's particularly irritating is take a movie that maybe rehashes. Maybe it's paint by numbers. Maybe it's a greatest hits, but it's also a really fun movie. And if you don't get caught up in what's going to happen, if you don't get caught up in, well, Maz Kanata is a really cool character. Shame we won't ever care about her again. Or, you know, uh, just the things that get set up in this movie that are so great. I, even watching the documentary, I was like, oh, this, this was, this was going to be so good. And it was. Except yeah. for its context in the entire thing. Now, this comes back to the Kyber Crystal thing. Something I said to you earlier today, Tessa, is I think the First Order are a bunch of frauds especially Snoke and Kylo Ren. Snoke is like, I will help you master the Force. Bullshit, you will. Like, I think what they were setting up in The Force Awakens is 
this is the bad news bears of the dark side over here. <laughs> they don't really know what they're doing. They've gotten by, you know, because as I said, what was it yesterday? That the empire was running on fumes because of the emperor. Like he really dragged them down at the end. Imagine an empire with like would be actual fascist in charge, not an emperor. That's what the first order is. They're not really using the force or they are in some weak ways. There's so much here. I'm just thinking which which of those many very good points to uh, to start with. So first things first, I think it's really, really tough to talk about Kathleen Kennedy because so much toxicity, oh, yeah. uh, particularly around The Last Jedi, was around there. Um, I very much agree with you that the failure, whatever you think of it, of The Rise of Skywalker has to be put down to this is a, a failure of management and I do not believe they had anywhere near enough time to do what they were planning to do or whatever they were going to do right you you if you fire your director who you probably shouldn't have hired in the first place but if you fire him with a year to go and then just chuck it back to the guy who's notably good at starting things and notably bad at finishing them, <laughs> um the, <laughs> Uh, and you give him nowhere near enough time and everyone acknowledges the strength of finding Star Wars films in the edit, which happened in the original trilogy and it seemingly happened quite a bit in The Force Awakens as well. And you keep your hard release date. And the obvious comparison here is with Marvel and Kevin Feige. And Kevin Feige builds in reshoots they, they, they. I know people like assume reshoots are bad, but but Marvel's whole method, which is kind of like an agile project management method, is we assume that change is going to happen, so let's plan for it to happen and build it into our schedule and build it into our thing. Let's be flexible enough that if we have to slip release dates, we slip release dates. And he's got the confidence and the track record that basically no one's going to touch him and he can run that now, but he still runs it like that. He still runs with the slips. He still runs with the, with the reshoots. Now, whether you think Marvel is fantastic or not, whether they're all of their films in phase four have hit the heights of, of their previous phases, or if that was ever even possible, he does have a method that allows for flexibility and change uh, and has brought him success. And the, whether it's Kathleen Kennedy, whether it was whoever was still Bob Iger at the time, uh, before it wasn't Bob Iger, before it was Bob Iger again, <laughs> right? Like whatever the level of management that basically said, no, we have to have a Star Wars film out at Christmas every two years even though you've changed directors, even though you don't have a story, we're still going to hit that date. Has is the is the reason why that whole trilogy ended up tainted? Because what happened was they were playing a game of exquisite corpse, and JJ just went, "I don't have time to look at Ryan's thing and understand it in order to." to draw my next thing so I'm just going to draw my next thing that's vaguely aligned and it's messy left right and center and there are big gaps in it that I'm just going to hand wave through because I do not have time and even if he did have time to I think he could probably have found a better film in the edit and I also appreciate that we're not talking about The Force Awakens we're talking about another film but that is I guess back to the point of like we're now discussing this film in the context of 
the trilogy rather than is this movie good and for me this movie is full of joy and you know what i think about joy we do know that Uh, all i was going to add was is that i think at least from kathleen kennedy's perspective based on the documentary footage i didn't realize until we watched the documentary that she had actually come over from lucasfilm like she was a lucasfilm person and she said in the documentary that when disney bought Lucasfilm, they were very clear from the very beginning that they wanted a Star Wars movie by 2015. That's what they wanted. And the way that that's said to me implies that they didn't necessarily care about the content. Like they could have literally just remade Star Wars. And I think they would have been like, all right, put it in theaters. Let's make some money, you know? And that to me, I think is indicative of the problem that you're talking about. This idea of, yes, we just need a Star Wars. Like, Kathleen Kennedy, hire people to make us the Star Wars. And that's kind of where we are. I said something to Tessa last night. I think it was, was it last night or this morning? Uh, I think it was last night. I said something to Tessa last night. I said, do you realize that The Force Awakens is the first studio Star Wars film? (laughs) The original trilogy and the prequel trilogy were all independent films. Period. No qualifications. That's what they were. Yeah. And so the, the first one put together by a studio does exactly what George Lucas was afraid of. Exactly what he said didn't want to happen when he didn't want to sign with Fox. When he was worried about having to give control over because Bank of America called in his loan for Empire, he said, I don't want this to happen. Fascinating. It really is. Right, but he had just made three terrible movies, so I kind of can't really back him up. Well, it's, 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 it's interesting, and I'll say more in the documentary section where we talk about that a little bit. But suffice it to say, half an hour in, that I, I just wanted to finish the negative things. Like, that's all I have to say. There's there's nothing yeah. else really I can say negative about this film other than how it fits into context of the trilogy. And this is the, this is the hot take. I will rate The Force Awakens higher than The Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace will be higher in my ranking than The Force Awakens. Because, and I was, I'm shocked. I've been having this feeling since day one of this, is that The Phantom Menace does more to set things up that actually occur than The Force Awakens. And that means a lot. And so which one am I likely to, which one am I more likely to want to watch in the future, given that the original trilogy is really the only one I'm probably going to come back to over and over. But I think it's The Phantom Menace weird i have a completely different view i know i, know. <laughs> I would I, I would happily never watch the phantom menace ever again and i would happily watch the force awakens twice a year right oh that's interesting i mean for me honestly it'll probably be the original trilogy and the prequels and the sequel trilogy when we do monkey revisited 25 years from now that might be the next time <laughs> i watch them it wouldn't be 25 it'd be like what 23 years <laughs> But really, Tessa, is it good? (laughs) And where I want to go to first here, so I want to give you the prompt here. Before we talk about the new class, I want to talk about the returning champions first. Mark, Carrie, 
and Harrison mostly, although Anthony Daniels and uh, Peter Mayhew Peter Mayhew are back. But what do you think about Leia, Han, and I guess Luke? Oh, I love it. I think this film, and this is something I didn't really get to say in the first section, but I am going to keep coming back to it in this section, I think, is that this film sets up a lot of really interesting ideas about stuff that could happen after the events of the original trilogy. I think there is a way they could have gone where they could have made it more interesting building on these ideas. I'll get to that Mm. in a while. But I think, especially with these returning characters, I mean, we talked about this with Elise yesterday, the idea of do Han and Leia stay together after Return of the Jedi? Um, You know, are these two people who actually work in a long-term relationship? And this answer is telling us, no, they actually don't. Um, And it's for all the reasons we talked about yesterday. Like Han isn't magically going to become a diplomat overnight and Leia isn't going to, you know, abandon all the training that she's had to be a political figure. She's not going to abandon, you know, her experience being a rebellion leader. And that eventually can drive couples apart. Um, It can also not. But in this case, I think what we're being told is that it did. It also, that we're being told that it's the trauma of basically losing a child that, that drives them apart. And I think both Harrison and Carrie do such a good job with this. I mean, the scenes between the two of them are some of the best scenes in the film and like just the emotion and the way that you can tell that they still love each other quite a bit, but that they just don't, they never really knew how to live together. And that was something that I think was seated in the original trilogy. I think um, Lawrence Kasdan and, J.J. Uh, Abrams really picked up on that thread and really went with it. Um, but there's still also that humor. They're still the same characters, right? They still, you know, say things like, you know, when have you ever been a help? Don't say the first Death Star. You know, like those are things that they would say to each other in the original trilogy. So, you know, to me, I think they're doing such a good job talking about this relationship, interrogating what it would actually look like, you know, after 35 years, because this film is set 35 years after return of the Jedi. And there's, these are conversations also that parents would have with each other, right. About a child that they're estranged from. So I think full marks to the two of them. Yeah. I I think, I mean, Mark isn't really in this. uh, So I think we could probably skip him. Harrison is in it the most, and obviously has the most, uh, the the, the majority of the scenes. I agree. I think it feels very natural that Leia would have continued on into a leadership role that Han, uh, what was effectively a wartime romance, they would struggle to find what that looks like in peacetime, that they would have children, but that uh, the trauma of losing, effectively, as you say, losing a child meant that they couldn't deal with each other. But I love how open their conversations are with each other. They're, They're... there's a tinge of regret, but there doesn't seem to be a tinge of malice or of um, contempt or anything between them, um, which I really like. Uh, I think Harrison Ford uh, does a great job. He's got chemistry with everyone. He is His timing, he shows up, which is not something you can always say about <laughs> Harrison Ford in movies. He shows up for this film, and I think he um, is very, very good. His timing is great. His comedy is great. 
obviously we know why and we're not ready to talk about it just yet but this is it is Harrison Ford it is old man Ford who for the first time in this 11 days of Star Wars made me get all choked up I mean it's it's boy I mean this this scene this movie really gives it to you at times so before we talk about the new class once again this might be a good place to I think there's pros and cons here, especially from your point of view, Tessa, uh, about nostalgia. I mean, there's nostalgia in the movie itself. I think the most recognizable line from this movie is Chewie, we're home. And mm. it's it's such a big... Re- like, I, I probably lost it in the theater multiple times the first time I saw it. And this was it. This I know I have uh, in this... In just, Oh, it's so great. Except for the fact that nostalgia is provably a bad thing for for progress, for, for things moving forward. But that's what this movie trades on to work. Figure that one out. Tessa. Well, I mean, we've had this conversation before and you know how I feel about nostalgia. It's a dangerous emotion to have. I think nostalgia 98% of the time is used badly in a lot of these types of films. I actually think it's being used fairly well here. I think that it there are a couple moments where I'm like, all right, this is a little bit unnecessary, but there weren't that many. Um, you know, most of the time I just felt like we were seeing these characters do new things instead of just trading on the fact that they were there, right? I mean, maybe a little with Luke, but that's because he doesn't enter the story until much later. And although I really loved in the documentary seeing that during the, the uh, that he was at all the table reads that he was doing, like he was actually reading, you know, with them. And I thought that that was really cool to give him like that ownership over, over this film as well. But nostalgia, it's hard for me. It's hard to do something that's nostalgic that also moves the story forward in any kind of meaningful way. It's hard to say anything new when you're relying mm. too much on nostalgia. It's hard to interrogate what's come before when you're relying too much on nostalgia. And this is actually where I think the film could have had a little bit of a different context. And I think it would have worked a little bit better because my other problem with this film is the idea that the rebellion becomes the resistance because I'm just like, Oh great. You got a name change and like, um, you know, it's the same old story again. And I'm not trying to say that like the first order wouldn't happen and that, Leia wouldn't fight against it. I think a more interesting story is how did they rebuild? Like, how did they build a Republic out of the ashes of the Mm. empire? And it would have been more interesting to me to see them actually try to build something. And then that thing come under threat from the fragments of the empire, including maybe the first order, you know, actually being the still the villain, but instead of the people controlling things as they immediately are in this film, it would have been interesting to see, I think more of a civil war type of context and to actually see, but it's hard to do that. It's hard to show people building things as opposed to fighting against things. I think the problem that JJ runs into is that he still wants to write these characters as rebels, as the underdogs And it could have been much more interesting to write them as people who are really struggling um, because they don't have the institutional knowledge that all those people have died. And they are trying to build something that doesn't have any infrastructure that people don't believe in. And I think 
even if this was filmed, this was set 20 years instead of 35 years after Jedi, I think we could have really dug into some of those themes. Instead, it just kind of feels like, oh, we're anti-fascist again. I just think it's really interesting that the, the trilogy you wanted was 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 <laughs> the, the Chuck Wendig first Disney authorized first new novel series after everything was made legends the aftermath trilogy you're actually just asking for the thing that they got that they asked for they at they knew that was interesting and they asked for it and they got it just not as a movie the other thing is the Timothy Zahn trilogy, which is exactly that. Like, it's a little bit further on, so it's like six, seven, eight years after, I think. But it then has a fragile New Republic. It has a remnants of the Empire threat, not a whole new military organization with its own wherever the heck it came from. Um, I think you're. I think completely fair points about the fact that. They are. They've just jumped and and are retelling, and they don't give you really a lot of detail about what happened in those intervening years, or and I don't always mind that. I think on the nostalgia point, I think when I when I don't like nostalgia is much more the way it gets used in the prequel trilogy, mm. where they basically just repeat lines. Um, it's it, they you know kind of shoehorned in the repetition of of lines or the repetition of certain themes or or people meeting each other randomly that makes no sense that they would have ever actually met each other and it's only just because we want to we want to repeat some interaction that that we can wink and nod at it's very winky and noddy and i find that it's much more subtle while still being kind of in your face and kind of obvious it uh, that doesn't make any sense it's in your face but subtle but like I mean, they, they that's kind of what i feel about the force Awakens. in a lot of ways yeah, yeah. no yeah. i completely agree with you and just one last note on what i just said one way they could have done this also was to just make this movie the way it was and then have the next film be an extended flashback which i think would have been very interesting um and they could have recast um some of the older uh actors in the flashbacks i that would not have bothered me. And then the other thing I was going to say is even if you did make this film more context contextualized within like a fledgling Republic type of context, the new storylines would still work. Um, all of the, all of the younger cast would still have, could still have major roles. In fact, they could still have the major roles in that kind of context. Um, so I'm not saying this movie should be completely different. I'm just saying, I wish it was maybe slightly closer to the end of Jedi and I yeah. wish that it was more about building and less about rehashing that that's what I was going to say otherwise I love it <laughs> like <laughs> and that's that that's what's complicated about this I think it's it's a victim of of circumstance which is that they didn't make it until what 40 years right after after the original ones and they still had the old actors around and wanted to use them i think it goes back to i think what both sam and i said in in star wars was we were interested in what comes next and then george and star wars went back to what happened before and then by the time they mopped up all of that so much time had passed that they now were like well we still want to use this old cast member these old cast members because we know they're they'll be a draw but they're old 
now so we have to make it set 35 years ago 35 years later and then we don't necessarily explain the context of what happens in between but that's kind of why i like it like because like new hope doesn't do that either like new hope happens with a bunch of rebels and you know there's an empire you know there was a republic before the empire you don't know any details about any of that but it still just works as a story so i think i think this film works if you deleted every other star wars film this film works only second only to a new hope as a standalone film i really think it does I'm not sure i agree I, with you with that because of yeah. all of the stuff between leia and han like, I think that that doesn't have any emotional, it doesn't have the weight that it would have, I think, without the original trilogy. I don't think people would be as invested Maybe. In it. Whether they're as invested, I think is a fair, fair comment. But then what is the investment in A New Hope? What is the investment in that? I just think as a standalone story, more than any of the others, it, it works. That's just my big point about The Force Awakens and how I wish it was different. But like I said, I actually also really like this film. So it'll be all positives from here on out. <laughs> well, well, that's not going to happen. Let's move away from the old and into the new then. Who do we want to start with? Because I want to talk about all three of these characters. Who do you want to start with? Somebody Let's talk pick about a Daisy lane. first. She's well, the she... easiest to talk about. All right, go on. Ray? I think Ray's a great character. I mean... We've been spending so much time on this series talking about how George Lucas et al. don't really know how to write women and, you know, the travesty that is Padme's story in the prequels. And now we get a main character that isn't Princess Leia, who is a great character, but we get a character who's a very different sort of woman and who has a lot of mystery about her. She's played really well by Daisley Ridley, um, who is just so... She's so fresh-faced and vulnerable in this, while still being very, very capable and very, very knowledgeable. And I think that's a difficult combo to pull off. Do I wish that Jakku wasn't Tatooine 2.0? Yes. But other than that, I think the idea of just picking up the story with someone who's just... I mean, this isn't important until Last Jedi, but somebody who's just a nobody, some random person who is not connected to anything else and who has her own motivations, her own needs. You know, we get invested in her story of why she was left there on this planet and who is she waiting for without necessarily knowing anything else about her. And I think, again, that's hard to pull off, but I think that they managed to do it, especially with this actor that they found, um, who is a relative nobody as well at the time. The, um, the resident nobody... As as Sam has dubbed me uh, for this uh, episode of the podcast, I think yeah, I, I agree. I think she's fantastic. I think the introduction to her as blooring around this wreck of a star destroyer, as uh, sliding down on a dustbin lid <laughs> down a, a sand dune, getting on an old um, old speeder. Um, the fact that she lives in a downed attat, the fact that she's kind to droids. Uh, I'm not even mentioning how incredibly good her music theme is, which is just, you know, one of the best themes in the whole of uh, of all of, of Star Wars. Her enthusiasm, her, her keenness is 
Luke Skywalker-esque, but without the whininess of Luke, I think. I know that Kennedy and Abrams and Kasdan all really took a victory lap, uh, kind of applauded themselves for uh, having their main character be a woman. And I w- I've been thinking about what I want to say about this and something very uh, perhaps left fieldish came to mind. And it really strikes me that this is a story where the girl is the main character. And the important thing here is that is rarely talked about in the movie itself. Han Solo was always going to be doubtful about any youth in his cockpit, but that's not misogyny or chauvinism. It's just his attitude towards other people, especially youth. He immediately recognizes her competence, her skill. Chewie does as well. You know, and they're they're very admiring of it in some way. It's just, you know, that that this person and maybe they see shades of themselves or anything like that. So but to me that's just very surface. All those things are pretty surface. What strikes me is gosh, how would I have turned out differently if I had seen this as a child? You know, growing up, you know, who did I who did I uh align with in my head? Luke, who's a boy. This is really the issue of none of the three main characters are white dudes. And and how many different people does that bring into the universe? How many people saw themselves in a Star War in this movie that had never really seen themselves? And that really has the power to change lives. I mean, I, I really think that kind of thing makes a big difference because I think about um, my own youth. And I guess that's probably something that'll frustrate me tomorrow and the day after. Just another thing. <laughs> but in this, I just just watching it, I'm like, oh, man. Where have you been all my life? Literally. <laughs> also, if you look at what are the what are the three major modern franchises for Star Wars, and they are all heavily featuring uh, Latinx uh, protagonists. You've got Diego Luna with his Mexican accent in Rogue One and in Andor. You've got Pedro Pascal as a Chilean in um, in Mandalorian. And uh, I think Oscar Isaac is Guatemalan heritage. It, they have, God knows they've got backlash for it, and mostly about women, let's be honest. But they have done a good job at pushing this forward with incredibly charismatic performances from all of those actors. And I include John Baig, and I include Daisy Ridley, and I include Adam Driver. You know, they've got a fantastic diverse cast of great performers but the there was a story that came out around rogue one of a guy who'd taken his dad a mexican american guy who'd who'd taken his dad to see rogue one and his dad coming out quiet and then just going i never thought i would hear that accent in a star wars movie there's also good ginger representation in this movie too. I just I just don't want to leave that out. General Weasley, you mean? Yeah. This goes back uh, to what Melissa said in our 
the Empire Strikes Back I'm episode. Who said that. It Thank was you. Melissa, where she's like, the, the the fascist organizations only hire people who look sickly. Like nobody can look good while while on their while on their payroll. <laughs> the uniforms are uh, are doing all the work. Right? I mean, Ray's costuming is great. First of all. I like the fact that you can do Jedi business in capris. I think that's super important. <laughs> and and I just got to say, I mean, I I this is this is the kind of girl that I I have a lot of respect for. Doc Martens go with everything, everything. If true. you grew up in the '90s, you know this is true. And I am glad that we're bringing that back. Also, space buns. Yeah, but triple, like practical triple, space buns. She is a triceratops. Space buns. Like space buns that you can do by yourself <laughs> without looking in a mirror or adding extensions. Or foam. Or foam. So I would like to A, a claim and re- and point out that I was wearing some cherry red DMs <laughs> around the town today. Uh, but, but also like Ray always looks practical. Yeah. It's kind of like... Um, I know she's a somewhat dodgy person, but Evangeline Lilly in the Ant-Man and, and the Wasp films always insisted her hair has to be in a ponytail. When she takes the helmet off, she has to be sweaty. Ray always she's 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 always looks practical. She's the only one, only Jedi I've ever seen who's dressed who looks actually like practical and not just either drowning in robes or overcompensating with some high fashion black thing. It's true. <laughs> oh man. Uh okay, so uh let's let's talk about what about uh what about half of America's it couple Poe Dameron. What are you looking at me like that for? I don't know what you're talking yeah. about either, Sam. Oh, Come I on. thought you meant like that Oscar Isaacs okay, was in. I just, I just want to point out that nobody understood that I was saying that Poe and Finn were America's new it couple after The Force Awakens they because were. I was on the internet. I know they that's were. true. And I'm going to say stuff about that later. Anyway, Poe Dameron's great. I wish he had more in this film. And it was really interesting learning that originally they were planning on him actually dying at the beginning of this film, which Oscar Isaac pushed back against because he was like, I was just in a bunch of films where I die pretty early on in the film. I'd like to do something else. And so that's great. And I I think that he, despite the lesser screen time he has on this film, manages to imbue so much personality into this character and so much empathy because he is supposed to be our rogue character, right? He's a pilot and he's, he's kind of funny. He like mouths off to Kylo Ren, you know, and like he, you know, he's daring and flirty and all of those things. But at the same time, he's the one who immediately recognizes that Finn has to leave the station. He's the one who gives Finn the name, right? Finn based on, he's like, I'm not calling you that number, which felt very um, echoey of the clone wars as well. um, Where all the clones have their numbers and they all come up with names instead because they're not numbers. And, you know, it, it is very interesting that there's no, like, why should I trust you? He's like, no, you're a desperate person in a desperate situation. Like I, of course I'm going to help you get off the station. And, you know, he's just so open, which isn't something we see a lot in Star Wars. This idea that he's just a very, like, good person who wants to help Ben. He wants to help Ray. You know, he 
also is genuinely flirting with Finn in ways that I don't even think Finn <laughs> realizes. Uh, you know, nobody's going to be like, no, you keep it. That jacket looks good on you. Like, no, no. Like it, the way he says it. No. Anyway. Um, and also, I love that he is BB-8's dad and will always be BB-8's dad and like actually pets BB-8's belly. Like when they get reunited, like I'm all about their relationship as well. So yeah, I think he's a rogue, but he's a different kind of rogue. He's not Han Solo 2.0. Agreed. He's in so much chemistry, it's ridiculous. I'm gutted that we didn't start the podcast with, so who talks first, do you talk first? Which is very <laughs> difficult to understand you with the mask. Tessa was in charge of it today. Mine is arguably uh, funnier, but so yes, it I, is funny. I just, uh, by the way, uh, our complaint department information has changed. I just want to make sure that everybody knows that our producer, Ryan, is also the complaint department. There's a, a UK film critic called Mark Kermode um, who always used to talk about um, about romantic comedies. And like you always knew who the good guy was in a romantic comedy because they were working on a boat and they had a dog. <laughs> and in this case... Yep, Poe Dameron is always working on on his spaceship, and he's got a dog, and and his dog is very very cute. Well, actually, let's just talk about BB-8 right now before we talk about John Boyega because we've are, we're already there. BB-8 is R two and Chewbacca together. I actually think that's fair. I th- yeah. I think I mean he's he's definitely sassier than R two D two in like I will rough you up. Like I am gonna start stabbing you, you know, if you're if you're mean to my dad. Kind I don't know of if anyone's well, actually sassy. I mean, R two. I know, I know, I hear no, what R2's, I'm saying, but I R two electrocutes aliens like who annoy him. Like R two is vicious. Like BB eight, no, no one else is flipping a lighter as a thumbs up. Like BB eight is yeah. doing that. Like, but he's more. <laughs> no one else is building re- building chemistry and relationships with all the characters. He's got the, like but he's BB-8 got the protect. Too. Well, everybody is Chewbacca's best friend. I mean, first of all, but also I think it's his protectiveness. R two. Yeah, he's a he's a sheepdog. Yes, right. He is more of a he is more of a dog. R two is more of a cat. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a really good. Yeah. That's it, we found it. Well done, Tessa. <laughs> All right. What what else do we want to say about BB-8 besides he's the coolest damn little soccer ball ever? I was so ready to hate BB-8 when the movie came out. Like I was just like, no, I'm an R2 fan. This is an R2 replacement. I don't like that he has so much screen time compared to R2, but he won me over. Like there, it's impossible to be mad yeah. at that little droid. He's so cute. And I love that because he the bottom part of him is a sphere that he can go down the stairs a lot easier than R2. Like he still has to take them one at a time, <laughs> yeah. which was very cute, yeah. but like, he's just, and, and it's good disability. Yeah. Rep, and they, like, where, where are the Rams? I, yeah, I said that. Yeah. Where are the Rams? <laughs> well, I mean, OSHA doesn't exist in the star Wars universe. So why do we think the ADA exists in the, in the star Wars universe? But yeah, he's I, just had I, so much emotion. Yes. So cute. But it's not just cuteness for the sake of cuteness. Like he he genuinely is part of the team and like genuinely, like you said, has all these relationships with everyone. Every, and and with everyone, yeah. right? With uh with Finn, with Ray, with Poe, like um that all they're all fantastic. Um your point about OSHA reminds me that I meant to say 
uh, in the last episode that um, whilst you should put guardrails uh, on the Death Star, you should not put guardrails on Joy. And that's my new corona. Oh, <laughs> love it. Real quickly, raise your, because podcasting is a visual medium, raise your hand if you've had your picture taken with BB-8. Hey, we did it. That was everybody. I hated but I also every have, second of it. I, <laughs> it was so. I awkward. have a miniature BB. I, I have a miniature BB-8 that you can uh, watch a. Um, you can watch along the Force Awakens with. Like he will sit there, watch it with you, and make noises in in tune with the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a great photo of my um, son. So he's read some like when he was four years ago when he was four he was reading some like early star Mm -hmm. wars uh uh, books which were all based around the new trilogy and one of them was called bb8 finds a friend so he then found my bb8 toy and picked it up and went bb8 found a friend oh that's That's so cute i love that but you know it's really interesting i i would say that disney has probably done for all this talk about Star Wars is for kids and the uh, Jar Jar, what you just described is Disney being Disney. They know how to do that job, whereas George Lucas comes out and ham-handedly creates Jar Jar. Right. Like, I will give them that. I mean, like, that sounds really awesome. I don't know if the beeps and boops are in a cod Jamaican accent, to be fair. Oh, my God. Uh <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so, John Boyega as as Finn. I had not seen Attack the Block. I have now. I introduced it to her. Yay. I had Ooh. seen Attack the Block before I saw this film. Loved it and was so excited that he I was just, in this. I think it's interesting that he's been in a Star War and she was the doctor. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of people in that yeah. film, actually, from like British television. So, yeah. Uh, but what do we think about... Well, it was, it was, I mean, John Boyega is like... It's hard not to think about John Boyega and Ray Fisher together. Yes. It's 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 hard not to put them together because of the circumstances in which they found themselves in major franchises. I mean, I think Finn is great, so I'm going to turn it over to somebody else. So I wanted to preface it with that, but not... Make it clear. I don't agree with any of that. I think they got done dirty. I think we should talk about a lot of that stuff when we talk especially about Rise of Skywalker because that's really the film that Mm. a lot of people realized that they had been cheated when it came to Finn as a character. Let's stay with the joy factor. how, How did it feel to see this person? In The Force Awakens... There's so much promise in this character, like promises that I don't think a lot of especially black viewers thought were kept um, throughout this trilogy. But I want to focus on the promise of this character um, here at the very beginning of the trilogy in this film. I mean, he even talked in the documentary about how J.J. Abrams was like, you're a lead in a Star Wars film. Like, how does that feel? And, you know, he was just, you know, so overjoyed to, you know, be in this role the idea of being a defecting stormtrooper was very interesting to him. And it was interesting to me as well. The idea that like you have these people who are just sort of the generic bad guys who often just play the role of like uh, incompetent henchmen or women, I suppose, you know, which it reminds me a lot of the last hero by Terry Pratchett. That's a whole other thing. Um, But like, 
you know, the idea that like there's a person under that armor and that person probably has political views. Um, but also the idea that like the stormtroopers that the forced blah, that the first order uses are brainwashed people who were like kidnapped from their families as children or sold by their families to the first order. Like all of that's very interesting stuff. It provides a very good backstory for Finn as a character. I think John Boyega's very charming, obviously. Um, he also has great chemistry with everybody in this film, uh, but especially Daisy and Oscar and, and Harrison, honestly, he spends probably more screen time with Harrison yeah, than, yeah. than anybody else. But I think the thing about his character is, is that this film pretty heavily hints that he might be a force user. And a lot of black fans of star Wars got very excited about that possibility. And, uh, I think it would have been an interesting promise to follow up on. It kind of feels like he got done most dirty by Ryan, really, more than more than in in Rise of Skywalker. And, you know, I know a lot of people have a lot of affection for that film. And it's not like he didn't have some good stuff in it, but it it, um, it kind of just dipped away. Um, I completely agree he uh, second only to bb8 he has more chemistry with everyone <laughs> like he is you know he's it's when he's like and him and ray in that early sequence where um she's whacking him with a stick and knocking him down he's like running by the seat of his pants so he's got a little bit of the hand solo by the seat of his pants in him as well that he keeps grabbing her hand and running and she keeps saying stop taking my hand it just works really well it's like when they're on the ship and like he shoots something basically for the first time and she's doing doing um piloting the falcon for the first time and they're both saying i can do this i can do this at the same time under their breaths like when she when he's like got a boyfriend cute boyfriend like he's just so charming and i love him and i like i've not seen him in too much other than the woman king this year which he's really good in as well it's tough to it's tough to say that he's the most charming person in a film that also has oscar <laughs> isaac and harrison ford in it but he Maybe he is. I don't that know. London He's charm. So good. <laughs> oh, oh, all London people charm, <laughs> as well. You know, Tessa. I feel fairly certain we'll be talking about the Woman King in our Oscar special in February. So I'm looking forward to that. First of all, I have been very, very restrained in my talk of thruples during this entire series. <laughs> Mainly because... I, I was going to give you a whole nother thing for that. Oh, okay. Well, I will well, talk about that later now. then. Okay. Well, I've been very restrained. And part of that's because I actually don't think there are a lot of really good thruples in this series. Um, certainly not in the original trilogy. Ray Finn and Poe are a really good candidate are they're very good candidates for a thruple i think i think that they all have chemistry with each other they all flirt with each other at some point during this trilogy and i just think it would be amazing but this actually the serious answer to this though is this movie sets up all three of them to be protagonists of this trilogy like equal weight is given to finn and ray's story i don't think that's true in the other two 
yeah. installments. And I really wish they would have kept it that way. That's really my overarching point. Yeah. The, I mean, the others have chosen one narratives in a way that I don't think this trilogy has. And I think it's to the benefit of this trilogy. Um, whatever randomness happens in the in the third one, it, it there's never really that same chosen one narrative that you have with Luke or with Anakin. I was spending quite a significant amount of uh, energy considering thruples in this series as well, because, you know, I'm only human. Uh, unlike people who don't consider thruples who I, are I have human. one. When it's my turn, I'll be ready. I'm ready. <laughs> so I, I, but I was like, actually, it plays out into more of a polycule in the end, because you've got you've got a core core group, but then you do have Ben and Ray towards the end. You do have uh, Felicity, and you do have. Um, uh, whatever the random other stormtrooper's name, who I can't cannot tell you the name of that character from the Rise of Skywalker as well. So they can always they can always come back to each other as a core unit, uh, but then they can they can uh, polycule out. From I think you're both missing it because I don't think Ray belongs. I I don't I don't read Ray that way. I just don't. Although there is a very clear thruple in this trilogy. You're just missing the wrong third person. It's Rose. If you want to talk about thruples and and get me to actually admit that there is one happening, I'm going to tell you what it is right now. Okay. So we'll I just, see. I don't think Ray is, just don't read her that way. I don't. I do very much see her as the Luke analog. And I hate to use this word. I do. But it's the one that comes to mind. The pursuit of the Force and becoming a Jedi is a somewhat monastic thing. I think where we diverge here is that monastic doesn't mean can't be with Padme, you know, to go back to Anakin. But I see her as very driven to to do something. And it shifts, that something shifts pretty quickly from survival to when she sees the bigger world out there. She begins to see the pursuit as a life with Han and Chewie, you know, having parents who can raise her. And then, of course, that gets ruined. And then she goes to see Luke, who she sees, who she sees as a father. Now, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of the father figure thing because I think that's pretty incidental. But I see Ray as somebody who's very driven. Nobody and, in Star Wars has parents. Well, right. <laughs> I, I'm just saying I don't see her as as fundamentally interested in that and and it could be just the case of the we've all known the people who are just absolutely oblivious to everyone around them and their possible interest in them but i i take what you get what you're putting down there i think that's a fair point i think that uh, i'm not going to touch on the parent thing because i could spend three hours talking about parents and children in star wars (laughs) across the whole series and uh, (laughs) we don't have time i think i your point about monastic orders is interesting, and I would probably bring up that it is only a you know, hundred, couple of hundred years ago that celibacy in monastic orders was defined as not having sex and just not being in a state of marriage. And I think that the Jedi's cannot get married, but they should be fucking. I mean, Anakin probably would have been fine. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, no. So Anakin, I think I disagree because I think Anakin's monogamous, basically. And but I think that that um, anyway, there's a whole rabbit hole. But like, I think I think this is a perfect example of where yes, I wouldn't see her settling down or or sacrificing her career as a Jedi or as a force user or, or and I completely agree I think her drive is what's most important to her but I don't think I don't think I read her as asexual do we want to talk about Adam Driver because I have thoughts on no, the Raylo thing I'm still waiting to talk about Finn oh go ahead it's, remember yes well then say your <laughs> it's thing it's gonna happen <laughs> uh, to be fair I'd forgotten that <laughs> well let's just hope I can remember what it was I was gonna say I was gonna talk about casting i i will say i don't know i don't know if they used blind casting or some version or a variation of blind casting because i i don't i don't think that true blind casting is used as much as people might think or indeed at all but i do go back and and i want to invoke gray's anatomy for a second because that was a big deal the blind casting on it and there are a couple of different ways that you can do blind casting or, you know, whatever you want to call it, where certain characteristics, especially race, aren't taken into account. What I think Grey's Anatomy probably did the most right was when they casted black actors or Asian American actors or whomever they casted. But primarily, I'm thinking about those particular characters from the beginning. They did two things. The first one was even if the intent wasn't that these characters would be, for example, again, black or Asian American, once they were, the characters weren't blind to uh, that, that um, you know, the ethnicity or national identity or anything like that. There's a lot... Yeah. In the in Grey's Anatomy, about what it means to be black in the medical field, Christina Yang isn't often. It doesn't often take into account that she's Asian American, but it does just enough for you to know that the fact that she's a genius, she played into that stereotype. You know, with her mom especially coming on the show when she does. And then the second thing is you play to that, but you're also aware in real life what you've done. It is one thing to hire an actor of color. It's another thing to just be like, okay, well, I did that. I have no responsibility for representation now. So John Boyega gets hired. And so now we have a, a black man as a main character. Okay. All right. That's great. You can't just hire John Boyega or later Kelly Marie Tran. And we'll talk more about her tomorrow and just be like, I have no responsibility to that. You really do. Mm. And yeah. I think in The Force Awakens, I think they did a pretty good job. I think that John Boyega, I can't imagine anybody else doing this role. I, I think he's great. I immediately liked this character. And I guess my point is, this is a great thing that they do that ends up making me go, oh, come on. Why couldn't you have done better? By John yeah. Boyega. Like, that's another really good example of that. And I, I would have been interested to see him have a chance to dig into 
what it means to look different than the people around you. Uh, I would have been interested to hear that from, you know, Chewbacca or Maz Kanata, who is, of course, voiced by a black woman. You know, I we haven't yet talked about those things in Star Wars. We can't actually, and they don't have to be an analog for what happens here. It seems very neutral in that way, except it's not when he gets backgrounded later. It makes me think of Pratchett and his line on on racism, which is when there's dwarves and trolls around the color of your skin doesn't make doesn't make a lot of of difference i think the empire is a human first Mm -hmm. anti-alien so it is a speciesist organization and thrawn is one of the few sort of exceptions to that but i agree I, i mean i agree fundamentally with the underlying point that they don't make any deal out of it he completely slips in everything's great he does a wonderful performance and they let him and kelly murray tran down both in terms of their character development and in terms of their public support in the face of um absolute atrocity yeah i remember when the trailer came out there were so many racist things that were hurled at joanne boyega just from the trailer just seeing a black man in a stormtrooper outfit we didn't know anything about him as a character, but people were already upset by it. So, and Disney did nothing to protect right. him or Kelly Marie Tran later. And the point you made earlier about um, there are people who were like, well, is he going to be a force user? Because you get the shot of him with a lightsaber in this film, and they definitely used that in promos, was him holding a lightsaber. So there was always this question of, well, who is the Force user? Who, mm-hmm. You know, wh- where are they coming from? I don't think it's a bait and switch because I think it, in the film, it works. It possibly a bit of a bait and switch in marketing, and it's definitely a failure to follow up on that properly. E- even if they weirdly hint at it in in the Rise of Skywalker, I think the fundamental p- point that you guys have raised that's made me rethink about this film is that as much as I love this film, it does make you look at the whole sequel trilogy and go, there was so much potential that just ended up smelling a bit like a fart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, you know, it, it's, these characters are great and the performers are great. And we, what we ended up with across the trilogy, if, if, if not in this film, but across the trilogy, is is lesser than we could have, and that feels unsatisfying. It also, we'll talk, we'll segue to Adam Driver here, but we didn't talk about it the other day because we haven't really talked about Obi-Wan a whole lot. But after what happened in the beginning, uh, after the premiere week for Obi-Wan, Ewan McGregor gamely came out and did what he needed to do, but basically Disney sent out Ewan McGregor to tell people to stop being racist. Like they, they maybe they finally learned their lesson, except not really at all. Let's go to happier places. Let's go to John Oliver, the object. Let's go to the object of John Oliver's affections. <laughs> That's right, Adam Driver, that mountain of a man. Step on me, King. I love this character so much. And to go very briefly back to Raylo, 
I thought of Raylo immediately when I saw this film for the first time because yeah. it has romance tropes in it. It has her him carrying her onto the ship. It has that tension, that sexual tension between them, basically right before he starts torturing her, which is weirdly another romance trope. Um, and so there there are like, you know, he's a kind of obsessed with her by the end of the film. And while it's not overtly romantic, it is to the trained romance reader, it's a setup. It's a it's a meet cute. It's a these two people are going to become obsessed with each other. Maybe they'll fall in love. Maybe they'll get together. Their possibilities are endless. I don't know if it was planned for it to be that way or if Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver just have a lot of chemistry <laughs> together. And so that just kind of made the whole thing read a little bit differently. But that's that's my opinion. I actually do think it's there um, as subtext in in this film. But Kylo Ren specifically, I love as a character because I think, and this gets back to our parenting thing, unfortunately, he his story is one of generational trauma. I don't know what his life was like as a child, except for the fact that his parents were pretty absent and that he has said in, I don't know if it's, it's not this film, it's in a later film that they always cared about the rebellion and about the Republic more than they cared about him. Um, and there's some other things that, that I'll get into in the next film that also pre- precipitate his rise to the dark side. But it is this idea that like, even if you did everything right, there is this sense that you are affected by the trauma of your childhood. You're effect, you know, you're affected by the way your parents did or didn't raise you. And that's going to affect your parenting style as well for better or for worse. And it is interesting to see this person who really feels like his parents have failed him and he's going back into this idealized version of his grandfather, which doesn't isn't even real. Like Darth Vader does like would not understand what's happening, I think, in the First Order, and he wouldn't understand necessarily what Kylo Ren is doing. And so I just think that that is very interesting, the way that whether Adam Driver, Adam Driver, whether Kylo Ren feels like Darth Vader would have understood him or if Snoke has made him think that Darth Vader would have understood him is like a question, I think, in this film. But I do love the ways in which this is talking about sort of the failures of the Skywalkers to prevent their trauma from affecting their children. Do you know the do you know the poet Philip Larkin? No, I don't. I do. Okay, so I'm going to read you I'm going to read you a poem by Philip Larkin, which is what you've just been saying. But that is, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that is where we are with Ben. And it's, it's an interesting comparison between them fucking you up and pass, uh, the, or, or Han and Leia being present or semi-present and fucking you up uh, versus the offloading to the Jedi Order and the Jedi Order as a boarding school fucking things up, right? Like, it is that how do you, how do you make sure 
how do you ensure that the generation and that your children are your best part and not your faults and not the other way around and the only solution to that is the therapy that and work you have to do on yourself so that you are a at least comfortable comfortable enough with understanding and knowing what your faults are that you can recognize if you are passing them on and it's you know therapy probably a good thing you know (laughs) who can say i don't like kylo ren i don't i know you don't and i think i figured out why today we have been asked with anakin skywalker and luke skywalker what if you have somebody in count dooku possibly from origins maybe harder to know that one when you have somebody who is born to the light side what happens when they're tempted over to the dark side? Which assumes that all Force-sensitive people or Force users are born onto the light side. What if the consideration was, what if somebody who is born to the dark side is, is uh, someone attempts to bring them over to the light? And if you start with that proposition you understand why Luke failed. And Ryan Johnson actually does pick up that thread into The Last Jedi because he talks about, Luke talks about sensing something bad in him. Ultimately, we're disappointed in the answer to this. But what really made me think perhaps there's something there is once again, I think the First Order are horse idiots, basically. Snoke... Whatever he is, is using Kylo Ren. He doesn't, he isn't able to do what he wants with the Force. It's not like Palpatine, who's also a really good Force user and is going with the whole Sith thing of having two. I think Snoke might possibly be trying to mold Kylo Ren because he can't use the Force himself in the way that he knows Kylo Ren could as as an agent of the dark side it makes me far more interested yeah snoke is probably the biggest thing that that ryan johnson noped out yep. on <laughs> like like he he just went not interested in this guy gonna kill him off uh and then jj just sort of weirdly somehow doubled down that <laughs> somehow doubled down that at the end i think it's an interesting point i think I like Kylo. I think he is an immature villain. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think you have, when you start uh, the original trilogy, you have mature villains. You've got Tarkin and Vader. Uh, even even though one is effectively more superior than the other, they're both adults in the room. Ben is, or Kylo, or whatever, is not. And you see that in the in his performance in the film. You, you see it deliberately, him saying, him sort of lionizing this melted image of his grandfather's helmet. You see it in him saying he feels the call to the light and and, and that confrontation scene with, with Han. You see his doubt and his insecurity. You don't see it. I don't find him whiny, even though he is tantrumy. <laughs> like he, you know, 
flings a lightsaber around, smashes up consoles, uh, all the stormtroopers run away from him. He he throws tantrums like a teenager, but he doesn't whine like Luke did. I don't find. I, not in an off-putting way. Maybe he does. Two things. One, I think... I uh, Adam Driver has actually said in interviews that he, especially in this film, that he plays Kylo Ren as a, be- a villain at the beginning of his arc, like that he's an unfinished villain. And so I think that is a distinct choice that you're picking up on um, by Adam Driver to play him as someone who has not realized his potential as a villain, who is still sort of at the beginning of that journey, still dealing with the emotions that are driving him towards that um, as a particular path I guess the other thing I wanted to say and this goes back to what we were talking about with Elise yesterday we talked a lot yesterday about how Vader Vader has been told literally by everyone except for Luke that it's too late for him and that once you're on the dark side you're on the dark side you can't come back and how that might have kept him in this abusive cycle with Palpatine for a lot longer than it would have Um, that was a whole conversation we have yesterday I don't want to rehash it But I do think it's interesting when talking about intergenerational drama and the ways that some of those things are passed down is the conversation between Han and Leia, where Han said, we couldn't have done anything different. There's just too much Vader in him, which seems like a really Mm. cruel thing to say about your child. Oh, it's your side of the family was bad. And so... Uh, so our child was bad, right? This goes back to like, is evil genetic, which seems to be a conversation that Star Wars wants to dance around, but it doesn't actually want to to actually have its conversation with. Obviously, I think if you say evil is eugenic, then you're on the side of the fascists. But it it does seem to me that there is this sense that all of the daddy issues that Leia had with her father, of which there would be many... She does, I think that she and Han did revisit them on their child and did think about these things like, is he is he born to be evil? Is there too much Vader in him? Instead of treating him like a fucking human being that has agency. And I I wonder about that conversation a lot, actually. Um, you know, there's just too much Vader in him. Um, you know, and that and that kind of goes into some stuff that Ryan Johnson will talk about in the next film as well. Yeah, and I think Ryan does do some interesting exploration of that in in terms of the relationship with Luke. But I agree, you never you never see what Ben's childhood was like. There's just this like the statement that Snoke got his claws into him somehow. He was susceptible to it because of well, all Jedi are susceptible to dark side really, but but he particularly had some some Vader in him. And then it all falls apart because of Luke's actions, effectively, which they flash back to in uh, in the Last Jedi. Um, I still, th- I, I think he's a, an interesting character. I think his hair is fabulous. Oh yes, obviously. All right. So before we talk about Andy Serkis's multiple contributions to this movie, I want to stay right here and talk about. Kylo Ren and one specific thing that happens in the movie with his unstable cracked kyber crystal lightsaber. That's that's why it looks unstable because it is. Uh part of the part of the process of changing it from blue to red 
he did a little additional damage at, to it because he's so angry, I guess, which only fuels the whole, you know, dark side thing. He takes it and he kills his dad with it. We lose Han Solo in this movie. Thoughts? Like, I think I worked out that it was going to happen like five seconds before it did when I saw it in the cinema. And it somehow, because it's so much more, so much better shot, so much better lit, so much better scripted, so much better performed than what happens with Obi-Wan in in Star Wars, I think the shock just hits you harder. And the and plus it's obviously, you know that it's patricide, right? You know, it, it's not, it's, you don't know the relationship between Obi-Wan and, and Vader other than the hinted at that the, he was his apprentice. Like you don't, you don't have the, the Clone Wars plus, plus the prequels to have built that, that investment up in them. Whereas you know Han Solo and you implicitly know Kylo or Ben from that. It's devastating. And the first time I watched it, this is very funny, actually. I So the, the Force Awakens was one of the last films that I watched where they didn't have assigned seating. And so you had to like grab your seating like as soon as you got there. And of course, my friend and I, my friends and I, we, I went with two of my friends uh, we couldn't find any parking in front of the theater because the everything was full. Like I'd because never seen anything like, like me it. Who had gotten their tickets? I earlier know. Were able to park in the parking lot anyway. People were parked in the grass. Like I have never seen like a movie theater. Like everything was playing. Every screen in the theater was playing this, and so we got we got in and we got like two of the last seats. And they, of course they were in like the worst position. They were like in the front section on the side, like we had to crane our heads up to like see the screen. It didn't matter. It was Star Wars. Um, it snowed that night too, which was very funny. Um, so we, what happened was we watched this film and Han died and it was horrifying. And literally a minute afterwards, the projector went out and everyone was so upset and they couldn't get it to work. And so finally, uh, one of the, and this has happened to me before on premieres, by the way, I have bad luck at premieres and projectors, but one of the, the theater staff came in and they were like, okay, look, we're not going to be able to fix this one. So the big, the big theater just got out um, of their screening. So we're going to just move everybody into that theater and we'll rewind the film a couple of minutes and, and we'll watch, you know, you'll, you'll have, the, you'll watch the rest of it. And my friend was gone. As soon as he said, like, we're moving you to a different theater, she just ran out of there and threw herself over, like, three three chairs in that theater <laughs> because she was like, we are going to watch this, like, in a better seat. And so, you know, we did. But, of course, they rewound it five minutes, and we had to watch the death of Han Solo <laughs> all over again. So I got to see it twice in one night, and it was just as devastating the second time as it was the first time. I, I do want to add really quickly because over the course of the last few days, you've heard pretty much the entire origin story of Sam and Tessa. You'll recall there was a party and then there was, you know, was it the next day or the day after that or whatever, where I actually asked you for your number after I said, right, you should get my number so we can talk so, about Star Wars. Well, the point is, if you're hearing this, what you don't know is that story and this story go together because I went directly from, we actually had a class final that day. So I 
went directly from that interaction to Star Wars to see The Force Awakens, she showed up as I was pretty much leaving from seeing it. So like all of this, all of these little stories that you've heard about us took place at the same time. <laughs> so it, it, you can, you can put them together. If you collect them all, you've heard them. What do you what? think of Han's death? I, it's sad. I hate it. So the other important, I'm not going to say father figure. I'm not going to do it. But the other important person in Kylo Ren's life that we have not person, I question mark. I don't know. Who is important in Kylo Ren's life is Snoke. Andy Serkis. Of course, as Lazi's mentioned already, as Lazi's mentioned already, Snoke is dispatched in The Last Jedi, and ultimately he means nothing. His role here is meaningless. We shouldn't even talk about him because who the hell cares? Lazi, what do you think about Snoke? <laughs> I think uh, possibly half a year ago when you started talking about this project i remember messaging uh tessa and being like i can have opinions about star wars <laughs> and um i uh, stoke yeah it's, it's the probably maybe the most frustrating thing about what happened with this trilogy it's like it's I want to know where the First Order came from. I want, uh, with an alien at its, at its head, I want to know um, where Snoke came from, what he was about. And you just never get it. It's just fundamentally completely unsatisfying. Not unsatisfying because it's a bad explanation. There's just no explanation. And it's just left as a completely dangling thread that is never explained. So, look, he's obviously a parallel to the Emperor. He's got the same massive uh, hologram that um, the Emperor does in Empire Strikes Back. But, you know, it's interesting because you see him ordering everything left, right and centre. You see him reacting to the fact that um, Rey has resisted Kylo in the torture chamber. Uh, Stroke, there's only one torture bed and there's two of us. We have to share it together. Trope that they start I don't know, man. I like Andy Serkis is fine in it. He's brilliant in Andor. Uh, it's not his best mocap work. It's the only thing I have to say about Snoke is that I desperately, desperately wanted him to be that big in real life. Like I just wanted him to be this giant sitting on a throne. I know it's all hologram stuff. It was just like that. Wouldn't it be funny if he was actually that big? That's that's my thought about Snoke. Or he could be like like a, a an Ewok. Yeah, like just really small. That's yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna give you a what if, and then I'm immediately gonna transition to our next topic. Okay. What if <laughs> Snoke's only real force power is draining Kylo Ren of his force power, which is why he needed Kylo Ren so much. Let's now talk about Andy Serkis's other mocap work in The Force Awakens, which is directing. Actor Lapita Nyongo as Maz Kanata. Another character. Who the hell cares who this is? Except she's really cool and I wish we'd seen her more. She's really cool in this, though. Like, Snoke isn't cool in this. He's just like an enigma wrapped in a mystery. Whereas Maz Kanata is cool in this. Not just the way she'll crawl across a table, not, the, not just that she's got a weird eye goggles. 
not just that she's uh, massively uh, sexually into Chewbacca. <laughs> like all of these. Where's my things, boyfriend? All of these. Yeah, like she's got the relationship with Han. She's, you know, got a statue of herself outside of her castle. And who doesn't want that? Like you've, she's got uh, Luke's lightsaber hidden in the basement. Where like the there's so much from? interesting things about well, presumably from Cloud City, I, right? Like, well, it'd be best been if it felt, you know, but yeah, sure, whatever. That's another thing we'll never find out about. <laughs> Ewan McGregor's in this movie. It's not like it was captured and then um, used to clone Luke Skywalker, who then wielded a blade against him. Uh, that would be in <laughs> the Legends series. Yeah, Ewan's in it. Isn't, didn't they say that Ewan basically rocked up on a motorbike, did two day, did a day's worth of work, and then rocked off again in a motorbike, and everyone was just like, this dude is the <laughs> I didn't know that, but I immediately know it's true. That is what happened. That's canon. It was really cool seeing the behind-the-scenes stuff of Andy Serkis basically teaching Lupita Nyong'o how to do motion capture and... I, you know, again, like Snoke, fine, whatever. Although Andy Serkis's voice is pretty awesome, just in general. But like seeing him just like oh, someone who is like really the pioneer of the, like acting in this kind of technology and who like, frankly, I don't think has gotten the accolades that he should have gotten because uh, yeah. the Academy and so on don't recognize what he's doing as actual acting, which is really, really wrong and unfortunate and bullshit but like this to see him like instructing someone who is also a really great actor and being just very free with that knowledge and free with that you know like this is what you want to do and this is you know how you get this emotion across and also the fact that Lapita Nyong'o talks about how you know she's creating this new character who's really awesome as we've all said but she's doing it while everyone else is in costume and she's on her knees with a bunch of dots on her face you know and so like you know <laughs> it's it's really cool to see them working together in this way and cool to see and they of course they'll work together in the first black panther movie as well later on yep. and so you know it's cool to see that relationship and Lupita Nyong'o's great i mean any character that she wants to play is automatically going to be cool but again, it's it's really unfortunate that this question raises more interesting answers than the rest of the trilogy, or raises more interesting questions than the rest of the trilogy is going to give us answers. Maz Kanata is a very important person in the post-Return of the Jedi Star Wars universe. Not that you'd know it. Before we move on, Tessa wants to say something about the boss-ass lightsaber fight, other than presumably it's a boss-ass lightsaber fight. I have to say that my favorite part of this, and it has been my favorite part since I first saw it in a theater, like this was the stuff that took my breath away was actually that lightsaber. Well, I guess it's two lightsaber fights in the woods on the Starkiller base, in the snow. It's just so beautiful. It really calls back a lot of that visual storytelling from the original trilogy while also doing something new. Because in the original trilogy, most of those lightsaber fights happen in very sterile places right like cloud city and death star and um you know all of those types of things on on the second death star i guess also as well and while i love those lightsaber fights this one it's in the woods in the snow and you have people bleeding everywhere and you know it's it's just so beautifully shot and beautifully done there's a lot of symbolism in it as well that but it's not overstated right when the rift opens up between uh kylo and and ray and 
you know, there's just a lot of really good cinematography in that scene. It just it never fails to take my breath away. I've been t- I'm going to rank them by the end of the series. I know I keep saying this like every other film. I am going to rank them definitely in my top five lightsaber battles. That scene has maybe the first fuck yeah moment of Star Wars when the lightsaber when he when Kylo Ren is calling the lightsaber to him and it swerves around him into Rey's hand. That is fucking brilliant. Like the emotion in that and the the like it's it's tough to overstate how good that made me feel in the in the cinema how good it still makes me feel every time i see it uh, i totally agree with you about the visuals and i think we probably have underplayed this like the visuals in all these three films really are just another level to what we had uh, in the in the six preceding uh, films and i think rogue one does some very very good visual stuff as well in fact rogue one opens uh in one of the most visually impactful ways um but that fight in the sort of dark in the forest of this as the sun is dying and the planet is breaking up around them and you've got the blue and the red light illuminating Finn and Kylo and then Rey it's just as well as the blood you know you've got the insecurity you've got the desperation of Kylo trying to trying to grasp on and trying to tell her tell Rey that he can teach her that he clearly like sees someone that he is interested in in a way that I don't think he possibly ever has before, right? In in um, he suddenly sees someone who can resist him. He suddenly sees someone who could be his equal or his partner, and he doesn't know how to deal with that. And he doesn't because he was at boarding school <laughs> with all the other Jedi. <laughs> like, he doesn't have the social skills to to actually know how to talk to a girl. Just but, ask um, her out, dude. Um, you don't have to fight her. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he tries to pull her triple ponytail. <laughs> All right, so with that, let's move to segment four. Meanwhile, somewhere that isn't Tatooine. And I just, we've talked about the secrets of The Force Awakens, the documentary that accompanies the film a bit already. I just wanted to mention a few other things from that quickly, see what you guys want to add, and then. We'll say a few words, perhaps, about The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett, which happen, of course, between Return of the Jedi and this film. So really quickly, in uh, the documentary, there were three things that I just, I really enjoyed about this, and then one bigger uh, thing that I think plays a role into our conversation. So... The construction or the reconstruction of the Millennium Falcon is something that is mentioned and dealt with quite a bit. But one scene in particular that's pretty interesting is when uh, the the non-regular people who aren't attached to this film get to take a tour of the Millennium Falcon because they don't have to wait for Star Wars Land at Disney. You get to see <laughs> Peter Jackson in the in the cockpit in the Millennium Falcon. You get to see new bones, Carl Urban. With Simon Pegg, who's in this film. Yes. And you also see... Judge Dredd himself. You see famous freedom fighter of our world, Malala, in the cockpit. Malala Yusuf? Yeah. That's amazing. She's in the cockpit. Yeah, you get a little shot of her just hanging out and smiling. 
Wow. That's so cool. While we're on the topic of the Falcon, the one of the production designers on the Falcon <laughs> recounts running into Harrison Ford at a department store prior to the film coming together and everything. And he says he says he couldn't resist. He goes up to him and says, you know, I'm working on rebuilding the Falcon for you. And Harrison Ford says, toggle switches. Toggle switches. And Harrison Ford in the documentary explains that in the original Falcon, the switches didn't have springs in them because they couldn't afford to buy new switches. So they had to buy old hardware where the springs didn't work in the switches. So if you toggled something in one direction, by the time they were done shaking, it would be back to where it originally was. (laughs) That's the the carpenter. That's the carpenter. And he actually says... He actually says while we were building the Falcon, which leads me to believe that Harrison Ford actually helped them with set design, which would make sense. Yeah. If I had a hammer, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's incredible. I, I just like it. You, you mentioned very briefly that Simon Pegg is in this. We should also mention that James Bond yes. is in this. Daniel Craig is a stormtrooper. Right. And the reason that he is in that is while The Force Awakens was shooting uh, at the same studio in England that they had been shooting on, you know, previously up to this point, that is the studio that uh, the Broccoli's also use. So while The Force Awakens was shooting, Spectre was in pre-production. And a lot of people worked on both films. So it is certainly not random, yeah. but it is awesome. Not too far away from the studio, turns out, is the location of the island that we'll see more prominently in The Last Jedi, but I really enjoyed seeing it in the documentary here because if you know anything about The Last Jedi and you know anything about Skellig Michael Island, you know there are puffins on I like that the fact island. that you said it's... I like the fact that you said it's not too far away. Like, it's not... It's not even in the same country. Uh, (laughs) Do we need to talk about what distances mean to us versus you? Because to me, that sounds like a day trip. I mean. It's such an interesting way to finish this film, right? Because where you're still, there's so much about this film that, that is delayed gratification that you do they do it early on with the falcon right like they run past a something that you don't see and they say that not that one it's garbage and then the sh- the ship they were going to jump into gets blown up by the tie fighters and then ray is like the garbage will have to do and you turn around and you see the falcon in the background and the star wars theme hits in and then luke you're just delaying and delaying like r2 like we didn't even talk about the fact that r2 is just in a sulk for uh, for the film and doesn't and then suddenly wakes up when he decides he can be bothered to uh, help out i think it's anyone. a depression nap but we'll we'll talk about that later <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, but then same with Luke, right? Like you delay and delay and delay seeing Luke. You delay and delay seeing Leia. I think they do a great job of it. I think it's actually really well done. But then Skelling Michael itself, yes. Puffins, very cool. I want to make sure the lead did not get buried here. Puffins. We saw Puffins. <laughs> who will later become But pork. Puffins. The last thing I'll say about the documentary is J.J. Abrams said they weren't ready. 
Well, imagine how he would have felt uh, four years later. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? They're like, in some ways, I don't know if we can do this. I don't know that we're ready. And it struck me. The response, you know, we've talked about auteur theory a bit in this series about how George Lucas cannot possibly be the only one to do this series because he wasn't the only one to do this series. He had tons of people working behind the scenes. But hearing J.J. Abrams say that, I wonder, is George Lucas the only person, for better or for worse, able to get his arms around all the things that are required to make a Star Wars? Has he created such an un- wieldy visual storytelling spectacle that nobody else is going to be able to wrangle it because J.J. Abrams sure wasn't able to do it and it really seems like he knew that. It's a good question. I disagree because A, I don't think George Lucas did it in the first place as we discussed before. Fundamentally, Marsha Lucas discovered half of that film in, in the edit. I think that George Lucas created a world and that should never be taken away from him. And it should always be the biggest part of his legacy is the world he created. But I can see Dave Filoni. I can see John Favreau. I can see Tony Gilroy. I can see um, JJ. Obviously, we, we don't fully agree on him. But I can see JJ. I can see Lawrence Kazan. I can see Ryan Johnson for better in some cases and worse in others creating great things in that universe and i enjoy them much more than the majority of things that george lucas did in that universe i'm i'm remaining silent on this until i've rewatched the entire trilogy because but i do agree the thing that stood out to me was that they wrote they hired i'm trying to remember his name it was another screenwriter first before abrams and castan got in yeah, on aren't, it. Aren't, aren't, yeah, aren't, yeah. And arm, I love that Kat, Kath, Kathleen Kennedy basically said, well, so the way that Arndt works is that he takes a couple of years to write a script because he wants to like fully immerse himself into the idea. And we were hoping that he would go faster than that, but he didn't. So we fired him and, and hired Lawrence Kasdan and, and JJ. And I'm like, why did you give it to him in the first place then? You know, like to me, that is yeah, the problem. Not the not the last time she made yeah, a mistake in that I, sort of Yeah, I feel world, like right? the problem is Disney. The problem is the time period in which they want these movies to come out. Um, And I think that, I do think that Abrams knew that at the beginning, but I don't think if you're asked to do a Star Wars and that train is already going, that you can really stop. Moving forward, what do we think about The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett? I love The Mandalorian. I've loved it since the first season came out. Grogu, Baby Yoda is like my comfort character. And I love him so much. And it's not just because he's cute. It's because I think he's a very interesting character in a lot of ways. And somehow they've made a puppet like that can convey complex emotions. Um, And of course, we've talked about Pedro Pascal and how good he is in that role. Although interestingly enough, most of the body work of The Mandalorian is done by John Wayne's grandson, um, which I think is a very fun. I think that's a very fun fun way of bringing Westerns like Western legacy into this. It's already a Western anyway. Um, But the fact that, you know, the person in the suit is actually a John Wayne descendant, I think is really cool. The characters are interesting, despite the fact that one of the actors turned out to be transphobic and kind of like torpedoed that character. But like, I, 
it's directed. That was a real shame yeah, as well. Yeah, because it was a good yeah. character. Um, but yeah, I love, I love the way that it's a Western. I love the way it's in which they fold genre into Star Wars. I think they should do more genre Star Wars, and this is a perfect example of that. Um, it brings us more into that Mandalorian mythos that I think a lot of people who watched Rebels and Clone Wars really loved. And yeah, I'm excited for more content from them um, in this particular show. I was very excited when they brought back uh, Fennec Shand and Boba Fett in the second season of The Mandalorian, especially because that episode is directed by Robert Rodriguez, who just makes beautiful, beautiful cinematography. Despite how you actually feel about him as a director or a writer, he does make really cool looking stuff. So it was a very good introduction and reintroduction of those characters. Unfortunately, the book of Boba Fett kind of bit off more than I think it could chew because like Solo, Boba Fett is the least interesting character in that show. Um, And yet they keep giving him screen time. And that's nothing that's I'm not saying anything about Tamara Morrison, who is a perfectly good actor. I think the problem is that character is kind of one note and there's not a lot you can do with him. But all the Mandalorian stuff in that is great. And Fennec, actually, the I want the book of Fennec Shand. I want that story. Like, uh, Ming-Na Wen is, like, just wonderful. And that character is also wonderful as well. Um, although I hate that they brought Cad Bane in and then killed him immediately. I was so happy to see him. And then they were like, oh, nope, he's actually dead. So, yeah, Disappointed in Book of Boba Fett, but Mandalorian still going strong. And of course, the part of book, the Book of Boba Fett where it briefly became the Mandalorian was my favorite part. <laughs> so I rewatched the Mandalorian pilot um, yesterday, uh, and I think it is maybe my favorite pilot of anything ever. It's up there with the West Wing and the OC in terms of like just truly fantastic pilots that capture the spirit of everything the show is going to be, and then and then set up the 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 propulsion forward. Um, you know that's even without think saying things like you've got like Taika Waititi playing an IG assassin droid. You've got like um, you've got uh, Nick Nolte in there. You've got. Um, uh, it's just an incredible performance, and I think I'd, I'd slightly gone down on it a bit. I think I like all of the tie-ins in season two, but I kind of felt there was too much. Like, uh, as I remember loving them all as I was watching them, so all of the stuff with Ahsoka, all of the stuff with where you end up with Luke, I remember being so energized by that finale season two finale sorry spoilers for season two finale of the Mandalorian but Luke Skywalker shows up um the the his lightsaber fight in the corridor against the dark troopers is this wonderful echo of the Vader lightsaber fight in the corridor in Rogue One you've got all of this cast of characters you've got Timothy Oliphant showing up as a sheriff you know yes Gina Carano just torpedoed herself and and everything and I don't have too much sympathy because I don't have too much sympathy for that sort of action. But um, it was it was a shame that it happened. Um, it was telling uh, the first time they tried to properly tell a non Skywalker show in the Star Wars universe, and 
I think they knocked it out of the park. I think it's really, really good. I think I found, as I said, on reflection, I find bits of season two where they just start trying to tie things in with other characters that you could have had from Clone Wars or Rebels or whatever else I found a little bit less satisfying on reflection. But that's just like a a half-star knockdown. Book of Boba, I agree. I think it's... I think the problem is that Boba Fett was viewed as a, the coolest character in the 90s by all of the boys and um, and <laughs> and others. Um, but he was a badass, evil bounty hunter. And they tried to like redeem him without redeeming him. I kind of liked bits of the, the Tusken Raider stuff that they tried to do, but it never really hung together. You kind of had this weird neon techno gang on vespers thing that i'd never really bought into uh robert rodriguez i mean i love um desperado and el mariachi and like some of his early stuff and i agree he he can make some iconic stuff but he can also produce some absolute garbage and i'm not sure that's his best work and uh, yeah as you said fundamentally fennec shand is the more interesting of those two bounty hunters and and ming no um i mean i loved her in agents of shield and and everything else i've seen her in 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 er of course as well but um yeah so i like to me mando is top top tier boba fett is solo Solo tier. tier The last call out I'll say is also Bo-Katan shows up in the second season of Mandalorian. Oh yeah, I think Played I by think Starbuck. that that tie-in maybe works a little bit better than the other ones because she's so. I mean, she is Mandalorian, and she's so tied into the Mandalorian storylines in the Clone Wars that it feels like you're continuing that story, but also giving the Mandalorian some more connections with Mandalore specifically because it turns out that. Uh, Pedro Pascal's character is kind of in a cult and Bo-Katan like kind of is like, what are yeah. you talking about? Like, this is not what you yeah, can take, take, your, you head can off, take your helmet, helmet off. off. It's we can fine. See your pretty yeah. face, Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also there's this really cool interaction with uh, Boba Fett where she says, cause he's wearing the armor and she says, I would know that voice anywhere. You're not a Mandalorian. You're a clone. And his response is very like, no, I am a Mandalorian. And like, it, you know, there, there were some interesting ideas that are introduced at the beginning of that arc that are never pulled through um, into the show in ways that could have been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They get very close with some of it. I agree. Like. All right. The time has finally arrived for Max Rebo's retcon corner, which, you know, really only has to deal with one issue today. Which is, when Disney purchased Lucasfilm, one of the decisions they made was to write off every single piece of tie-in novelization that had occurred since 1991 with Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire. Now, before I turn it over to you, Lazi, to maybe tell us about your greatest hits of the Legends universe... What, what stands out to you, I do want to point out, I was incorrect. The Death Star number three does not appear in the Heir to the Empire trilogy, the Thrawn trilogy from Timothy Zahn. It appears in the next trilogy, the Jedi Academy trilogy by Kevin J. Anderson. Kevin J. Anderson. 
Can you please give him his full title of hack, Kevin J. Anderson? Kevin J. Anderson is not anywhere near as good of a writer as Timothy Zahn, but he plays as important a role in this Legends universe, if for no other reason than volume. But uh, the Jedi (laughs) Academy trilogy is the trilogy that comes after the Timothy Zahn trilogy, It has to do with Luke setting up the Jedi Academy. It's very much, you know, the the wellspring of the sequel trilogy's idea about the Jedi Academy. I kind of wish, hack as he is, that we had gone more toward that. But the third Death Star is a prototype Death Star that is at the Maw installation in deep space. It really exists. I at least wasn't fever dreaming that. Lazi, what are the the things from the Legends universe that stand out to you? Kevin J. Anderson also then wrote a book called Darksaber, which is yep. where they had another Death Star, except it's not a moon this time. It's just a really, really big lightsaber in space. There, there were hits and misses of the Legends. The absolute uh, zenith is the Timothy the initial Timothy Zahn trilogy. It is really good. Um it I, I think it's eight, nine years after um after Endor. It's um you've got a conflicted new republic that is fighting amongst itself with different alien species trying to do different things you've got leia trying to act as a power broker you've got han kind of uncomfortable with the role of um of sort of i guess um consort really <laughs> uh, rather than uh, rather than anything else you've got luke trying to find more jedi and then you end up with this uh, the the fundamental the the two there are two incredible characters that are um introduced one of whom has had um the ability to then turn up again and one of whom hasn't uh, the one who has is Grand Admiral Thrawn, um, who is uh, who you know people who've seen Rebels will will certainly know, and I think we're going to probably see more about him in in the upcoming Ahsoka show. Um, but is shown as such a wonderful alternative to Vader in terms of how you lead and run an Imperial starship. He is terrifying. He is competent. He is not uh, emotional. He doesn't just kill people for failing like Vader does throughout Empire Strikes Back. So evil Spock. Yeah, but he also like he he has this huge thing that he appreciates art. Like he always surrounds himself by the art of of people that he is either trying to crush in order to be able to understand their psyche. Um, just a fascinating character. Um, that uh, that is absolutely the breakout star of those set of books. And the other major character is Mara Jade, who is an assassin who is trying to kill Luke Skywalker, who turns out was a hand of the Emperor, except that he was manipulating her, and ultimately, many books down the line, she ends up being Luke's wife, um, because basically the Legends books just went, of course Jedi can get married. The, the prequels haven't happened yet that haven't really made them super puritanical um you there are some other good ones i think there's um 
There's a truce at Bakura is a, is a decent one. There's a um, courtship of Princess Leia, which is very silly. I think it involves Han riding a snow rancor or something at uh, some point. It then goes off. Um, the there is there is that um, trilogy of books with the Moor, which is a space station in the middle of five black holes, as I recall, or something like that. Which is where you've got the um, the uh, the the prototype Death Star, which is you know very much contradicted by Rogue One. Um, you've got um, there was another good series at the time by I think Michael Stackpole called Rogue Squadron, which pulled together like. I think it was basically Wedge Antilles pulling in lots of lots of the the it's kind of a suicide squad of of uh, fighter pilots basically, and that was kind of fun, and then really it built on the Jedi Academy trilogy and then just spun the story out for another thirty years. I did lose track of the Legends books after the Jedi Academy. I probably read a few more of them you know, five, ten years further further down the line. But um I lost track of what happened. There was lots of these books. There was a, there was one the one only other thing I would say is there was one really good comic book by from Dark Horse Comics, which I think was called Dark Empire, which was uh, about about five, seven years or something like that after Endor, which involved like a clone of the Emperor uh, Emperor turning Luke into the dark to the dark side and um, him trying to resist that and trying to play off things and trying to to be in command of this um, armada of uh, of world destroying uh, spaceships again um, but that that led to him that was canon with these other books as well so that led to him being like he was a Jedi who'd been uh, tempered by the dark side as well as the light side of the force and that that's one of the things that led to his abilities later on. Anyway, I'm rambling a little bit because I'm not <laughs> where those Legends books happened, which is kind of what happened to those books as well. I have nothing to add to that. That was everything I would have said. <laughs> it really is. That's a succinct summary of I haven't read any of the Legends books. So this is all fascinating to me. So to move on to our last segment, The Lighter Side of the Force, Tessa, is there anything in this movie that is funny, really, really funny? Besides the droids. I mean, there's some good stuff from Harrison Ford. I mean, like, he is comedic. He's doing a good job. I mean, but it's all, like, it's it's all extensions of the types of humor that we saw in the original trilogy, but not in, like, a, like, funny wink-wink sort of way, just in the, like, this is the relationship between these characters, and it is genuinely funny, like, the way they interact with each other, um, especially when... Han says, I always talk my way out of trouble. And you can just hear Chewie rolling his eyes. And he's like, well, I do. You know, there's all that stuff. And the way he tries to, like, uh, basically fleece two different rival gangs of, of money. And one of them's like, you failed us twice before. And he's like, when was the second time? Like, it's it's very, very funny, that stuff. But as I said before, the funniest thing to me is R2-D2 taking what is essentially a depression nap. Um, you know, Luke Skywalker failed, Ben turned to the dark side. I don't think R2-D2 could handle it happening another time. I think he needed, I think he needed, he had a little bit of a depressive episode. And you know what? I find that very, very relatable as someone who takes depression naps when they're in a depressive, depressive episode. So R2-D2, my boy, just, he needed, he needed a break. He needed some time for some self-care. 
I think you're right that like 90% of the best lines are pretty much in interactions between Han and probably John Boyega is is close by. There's one other great scene where uh, Chewie gets injured and is being treated by a nurse and she <laughs> and he's like growling and she's like that sounds very scary. You must be so brave. When he gets injured earlier and John Boyega is trying to treat him and Han shouts back, you know, if you hurt Chewie, you have to answer to me. <laughs> Which just goes to show that even if everyone is Chewie's best friend, Han is his life partner. And I think that that reaction from Chewie is genuinely sad when Han dies. Like, I feel like Chewie is more of a constant in his life than Leia even is. And, you know, Chewie, Chewie's truly adrift after after Han goes. I think it is comfortably the funniest Star It's very Wars funny. I don't think it's close. It's very funny and sharp. And the jokes are, if they're winking, they're, they're as I said, they're very subtly winking rather than just hitting a nail on the head of like, hey, you remember this thing from before? Isn't it funny that I'm saying it again? All right. With that. I don't have a transition. I mean, I said some very dark things during this lighter side of the force segment. So on that note. We'll try again tomorrow with the very light hearted fun film (laughs) from Ryan Johnson, The Last Jedi. We'll be talking with Jared about it. Lots of good times. In the meantime, Lazi, where can people find you online? You can find me online at Twitter at Sam underscore Mor- No, sorry, <laughs> um, at Mean Englishman. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine and on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. Send us your thoughts. You can also find more from Tessa and Sam on moviejohn.com. That's moviejawn.com. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. May the force be with you and have a good holiday season.